Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. I've got a woman on the podcast today who is totally brilliant. It was a, a huge privilege to be in her company for half an hour while we talked about the Holocaust. Professor Mary Fulbrook is at the University College of London. She's press of German history there. And the way that she talks and writes about the Holocaust is remarkable, particularly because the Holocaust is one of those subjects you think you know, you think you've had on the podcast many times before, but Professor Fulbrook was able to hugely deepen, I think, my understanding of that horrific episode in human history. You can watch our interview with Professor Fulbrook, Mary Fulbrook, on History Hit TV if you go to History Hit TV. If you sign up and use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, you will get six weeks for free. You can watch the whole thing for free pretty much until Christmas. Not a bad deal. Please go and do that. You can also go to historyhit.com slash shop. We're selling subscription gifts, posters, calendar, all sorts of things for Christmas. So go and get something for your friends, your loved ones at historyhit.com slash shop. In the meantime, everybody, here is Professor Mary Fulbrook. Enjoy. Thank you very much coming on this podcast about the gigantic subject uh it's it feels even it's it's a subject we do feel quite familiar with it's on the school curriculum uh it is talked about and it appears in in our in our culture our films our books and yet the holocaust still feels like a subject too enormous to fully comprehend um it, it, how, how do you how do you attempt to do that this is certainly the case. I mean, it's almost unimaginable to think how a totally civilised modern nation of Germans could bring themselves to murder more than six million innocent civilians, men, women, children, little babies. It's inexplicable, almost. So I think the thing to do is to try and understand how different people could become involved in different ways in this apparatus, this system of collective violence, and find the tiny ways in which different people became essentially cogs in the machine, the much bigger machinery that produced that extraordinary outcome. So one of the things I try to do in the book is to look at the different areas, the different ways in which people could become complicit or start to become more actively involved in the system of violence. Well, that's really interesting. So let's talk about let's talk about someone at the top who you think might have some agency. Did the people running this gigantic apparatus of genocide, did they go into it wanting to do that? That hits one of the biggest questions that historians keep debating, which is why did they unleash this mass murder across such a wide swathe of the continent? And I think it's a slow process of improvisation and constant radicalisation. So you see the determination at the top to get Jews out of Germany initially in the 1930s, to exclude Jews from German society, to recreate the notion of what it meant to be German in terms of a more narrowly racially defined Volksgemeinschaft. But then slowly this process of exclusion becomes more and more extreme and under conditions of warfare the pushing to the east, the overcrowding in ghettos, the deportations, the growing disease, the violence of war pushes them over the brink, over a particular moral threshold into thinking the quickest final solution, as the Nazis called it, would be to kill. How interesting. So actually, uh, you know, there's, there's talk in the 1930s of sending Jews to Madagascar or, or, or just getting rid of the Jewish population. And yet within a decade, you're organising factories of death. Within less than a decade. I mean, the 
The interesting thing is there are legal provisions to exclude Jews from German society through the 1930s, but by 1938, by the time of the so-called November pogrom or Kristallnacht, which I think is actually a better term for it, um, you're making it impossible for Jews to live. You are actually taking away their means of livelihood, having taken away their citizenship, having taken away all sorts of social rights. And from 1939 onwards, effectively, the ideas about let's find a reservation, let's send them to Madagascar, let's create a reservation in Poland, somewhere occupied Poland, these peter out. The ghettos become more and more overcrowded. Then soon, those in charge of the ghettos in the autumn of 1941 start saying, don't send us any more Jews. If you do, we'll have to select out the weaker, the sick, the elderly, and deal with them more expeditiously. This is the way in which the, the guy in charge of one ghetto in Wutsch, Litzmannstadt, was talking in the autumn of 1941. But already, from 1939 onwards, there'd been a system of mass murder through gassing, and that was the so-called euthanasia programme, the killing of people who were in sanatoria by virtue of their mental and physical disabilities. And they had already been selected for murder in specially designed gas chambers from 1939, the summer of 1939 onwards. So what you have is a quite complex set of things happening together. In the summer of 1941, Germany invades the Soviet Union and they encounter far larger numbers of Jews, Jewish populations across the states that they've invaded. And at the same time, there is a protest within Germany against the euthanasia programme. Hitler calls off the official so-called euthanasia programme and gets the experts in gassing to transfer their expertise and to set up new specially designed killing centres in Poland, the extermination camps that have become so infamous. But you've already had these mass killings going on in the fields, the ravines, the forests of Eastern Europe from the summer to the winter of 1941, even before the first static killing centre comes into operation, Shelmno in December 41, and even before the infamous extermination camps, including most notably Auschwitz. In the years leading up to the, the Holocaust, um, you do see other genocides take place, whether it's in Tasmania or North America, of course, or most recently in, in uh, Namibia and in, uh, in what is now Turkey with the Armenians. Is it possible to say that the, 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 the Holocaust was born from a, there was a, there was a culture afoot which legitimised mass murder? I think that's overstating it a bit, actually. Um, and every situation of mass killing is distinctive in various different ways. What is really weird, I think, about the Holocaust is that there is a definition of this supposed enemy, the Jew, the stereotype of the Jew, as international capitalism, international jury, or even Bolshevism, Judeo-Bolshevism. And it's not a clearly defined different ethnic entity, as you find in many other cases of genocide, is an ill-defined, imagined stereotype that is seen as somehow a danger to the German folk, as, as Hitler and other Nazis see it. And so it is distinctively different from many, many other genocides where you can see actual um, physical 
disputes on the ground, disagreements, debates over territory, controversies, conflicts over particular possessions and so on. Um, this is a, a rather different phenomenon, and it's carried out in a different way as well. This extraordinary pan-European organisation of deportations and killings, which is quite different, again, from the conflicts on the ground between two clearly defined, self-defining ethnic groups in other genocides. OK, so we talked to some people at the top, some of the policymakers. What about these other people you identify, some of whom have only a very limited engagement with, with what was going on? Tell me about some of those people and how the decisions that they how they arrived at the decisions they made. Well, there's enormous variation when you start looking at lower levels of the apparatus. You can find, for example, simple peasant girl in Brandenburg who's called into the labour office. She's offered rather boring job in a factory, not very well paid. Or alternatively, she should she could go to Ravensbrück and become a camp guard. Better pay, better food, smart uniform, go out with SS men. So she opts for that. She gets to Ravensbrück. She discovers this is a horrible concentration camp. It's full of brutality and violence. She doesn't want to do it. First week, she's in tears, goes to see her superior officer and says, I want out. I want to get away. They say, no, just stay, just hang about. Just And after four weeks, that young peasant girl will become just as brutal, just as nasty as the other camp guards. So that's at one level. Um, take another very low level kind of person. Another one, again, signed up for labour, gets sent to one of the so-called euthanasia centres, discovers that they're looking after patients who they have to help into the undressing room, take their clothes off, sit them on a bench, calm them down, so you're just going to have a shower, and know that the next minute they're going to be in there being gassed. Or somebody who's driving a grey bus, taking these people to the centres. These people are very low level. They don't feel guilty. They don't feel like they're perpetrators, but they've been brought into a system where there are so many roles in the structures that are developing exponentially in Nazi Germany that require so many people in the workforce to actually make the system of repression and mass murder work. So that's really at the bottom end of the perpetrator scale, if you like. I think much more insidious, to my mind, far worse are, for example, the mid-level civilian administrators, the people who do have a choice, the highly educated people with law degrees, doctorates, who go out as part of the civilian administration in the occupied territories, and they are in charge. They say, never did anything wrong, not a perpetrator, never pulled a trigger, never shot anybody in the back of the neck. But they are there to reorganise housing, to get Jews out of their houses, into poorer areas, into the slums, to concentrate Jews in slum quarters so that they're overcrowded, so that they're dying of disease, to cut their rations so that they're dying of malnutrition and associated diseases, to fence them in so that they're effectively helpless when the SS and the Gestapo come to deport them to concentration camps. These civilian administrators who are in charge of ghettoization, starvation, humiliation of Jews, who are in charge of ensuring that anyone who didn't wear the yellow star or was caught out after curfew or was in the wrong place is shot. These people evaded justice entirely after the war because they didn't think they'd done anything wrong and they were not seen as perpetrators. Then there's another quite different category, if you like, those who did actually pull the trigger, shoot people. 
And what we find in Eastern Europe, particularly after the invasion of the Soviet Union, is a lot of local willing collaborators, Ukrainians, Lithuanians, Latvians, who have suffered under communist rule, who buy into the myth that the Jews are Judeo-Bolsheviks, they're communists, and who can be mobilised by the invading Germans to do a lot of their dirty work for them. So the Germans command and the Lithuanians, the Latvians, the Ukrainians do the actual shooting. And many, many people who get involved, we can talk also about Germans themselves in those positions in the Einsatzgruppen, many of them go crazy. I think one of the things that we don't fully understand is just how much nervous energy this took on the part of the people shooting. Some of them seem to have actually enjoyed it. There are some horrific letters home that you can read. Some of them didn't like it at all and had to be made blind drunk in order to shoot and then they shot all over the place because they were so drunk. Some of them suffered nervous breakdowns and Himmler, Himmler, Heinrich Himmler, in charge of the SS, was sufficiently worried about the mental health of his shooters that he was one of the ones who thought it would be better if we could devise a more efficient method of killing, namely the extermination camps. So I think when you're talking about how do people get involved, you've got to understand there's this huge range. It's a wide spectrum. And most people felt they were just a little tiny cog in one place, almost a victim of circumstances in some cases. I'm very struck by that when I think about the environmental movement today. You know, I meet, I take aeroplanes, I drive in internal combustion cars. I'm part of the problem. I don't regard myself as a boss of an oil company, but in future generations, I'll say, what was that idiot doing? And, mm. and yet I think I'm a guy trying to make a crust. I've got family. I just got, you know, you can, I have enormous, is not right. I, I have some empathy for those Germans who were caught up and other people. And I certainly don't think I'd have been one of the minority that would have stood up against it. I, I think that's the true horror of the Holocaust is that it's so easy for humans to become that. I mean, how many people do you come across who, took the principal science, who refused to work at Ravensbrück, who did uh, peril their own families and themselves, uh, you know, refused to take part in this. Mm. It's a huge spectrum. I think to some extent we shouldn't overstate complicity. There's some people who are more guilty than others. We do have to make distinctions. I think people had the choice and chose for reasons of career, opportunism, personal gain, benefit are infinitely more culpable than people who had little or no choice. There were a lot of people who in quiet, simple ways tried not to be complicit. So obviously very few were able to stand up against the regime and it was more or less suicidal to do so. The serious political opponents were rounded up already in the spring of 33 and anyone who seriously tried to oppose Nazism faced very very severe consequences but there are a lot of people who actually helped others victims of persecution in small ways and I think that varied a lot depending on where you were for example if you think about Berlin which had the biggest proportion of Jews in Germany um, a large, a sizable Jewish population in Berlin, 
We know that several thousand survived the war in hiding, and we know that many of those who survived in hiding were hidden by not one person, but by sequentially many people. They were moved from one house to another. So if, just to take, we don't know the exact figures, but just to make a sort of attempt at thinking, what does this mean? If you assume that 5,000 people were hidden, and you assume that each one of those was passed through at least 10 other houses, we're talking about 50,000 people helping to hide Jews during the war in Berlin. That's quite a significant figure. It may be totally wrong, we simply don't know the exact figure, but it still shows there were a lot of ordinary people trying to do something decent by way of giving somebody a bed for the night or putting them in a cupboard when the truck was outside deporting people, whatever. So it does show there were some people who tried to be decent. The other thing I think which I find really extraordinary and this um, is in fact not in in this book Reckonings, it's in the next book that I'm currently writing, is the way in which even people in uniform who were carrying out their allotted roles as police officers or whatever it might have been and were dealing with victims of persecution tried to be humane and kindly towards them. This I find so odd In the wake of November 38, for example, a lot of German officials trying to be kindly towards Jews who had just been arrested, put in concentration camp, come out, were trying to get a visa, were trying to emigrate. And there's this sort of common humanity persisting even across these different roles. So it's a very, very complex situation. And I think sometimes those tiny gestures of humanity made a big difference to an individual who was in a terrible, terrible position. It just gave them some shred of faith and hope and and strength to face the future. I, I've interviewed se- several Holocaust survivors, uh, uh, and not as many of you, of course, but and every one of them has a weird little story of how they survived. It's like a strange, and, and often does involve a, a, a kind or at least a sort of fairly benign intervention by someone in a position of authority. And and one of them explained to me that's because that's why they're there. I mean, every every to survive, you had to have had a strange little intervention of, of, a, of from a truck driver, from a passerby, from a soldier who couldn't be bothered. Um, otherwise, the machine would, would swallow you and, and you'd end up with your name on, on, the, on the memorial. Absolutely. Um, I, you, you mentioned that you feel... Uh, lots of people, the civilian organisers of the ghetto, for example, got away with it. And I'm surprised in a way because one thinks of the Holocaust as, as being poured over. We think of people being tried. We think of people being shamed, at the very least, having their names shamed in history books or the wonderful projects that go on and organised by Yad Vashem and others. Do you think that actually the Germans, the, the people responsible for this Holocaust more widely, haven't actually atoned for it? Um, it depends how you define it. And I think one of the things I try to do in the book is be quite differentiated in terms of understanding what we mean by reckoning with the past, um, achieving or attempting to achieve justice. If you look simply at court proceedings, the figures are pretty desperately bad. So somewhere between 200,000 and maybe nearer a million people were involved in killing Jews. 99% of them were never brought to court at all. That is a pretty terrible figure. If you look at the West German justice system, 
um, it narrowed down the notion of what it meant to be a perpetrator and used the ordinary criminal law definition of murder so that you could get away with it by saying you were only following orders. You were not personally motivated. You were not um, an excess perpetrator with particular brutality and personal motivation so that you could have been responsible this is for a long, long time, till the Damjanjuk case quite recently, but for most of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, when the vast majority of perpetrators were still alive and could have been brought to trial, the ordinary criminal law definition made it very easy for them to use the defence, I was only obeying orders. So you could have put 300,000 people into the gas chambers, but not be a murderer, because you were just obeying orders. So the West German system... They investigated maybe 140,000 people. They only brought around 6,700 to court. And the sentences they gave were extremely lenient. Only 164 people were actually found guilty of murder. Most were found to be accomplices, um, guilty of being an accomplice to murder or manslaughter, but not to be themselves a murderer. So the vast majority of sentences, 5,000 odd sentences, were for less than two years in prison. This is a parody. This is really just not justice in West Germany. If you look at East Germany, which was a brutal dictatorship, it was a communist dictatorship, so it's not a state characterised by the rule of law. But in East Germany, former Nazis were six or seven times more likely to be convicted of Nazi crimes. And those who were convicted were given much more severe sentences than in the West. So West Germany got this great reputation for facing up to the past, remembering the victims, but it did it without bringing perpetrators to trial. And I think beyond that... Um, there were many professional groups which just evaded the spotlight entirely. I mentioned the civilian administrators, the judiciary itself, which had handed down horrific sentences in Hitler's courts, excluded itself from being looked at after the war, um, saying it was merely upholding the law of the land at the time under Hitler's rule, so should not be looked at. That meant that the judiciary and the legal profession in the 1950s and 60s in West Germany was very, very full of former Nazis who tended to look more with more sympathy at the defences of the Nazis in the dock than they did at the testimonies of witnesses who came to talk about what they'd suffered. So the whole legal profession, the police forces in West Germany were also very, very full still of people who had served in the police forces under Nazism. So I think you have to look, the first couple of decades after the war in West Germany were very different from how the Federal Republic subsequently became and what happens at the same time is that there is a significant failure to recognise certain groups of victims, continued social discrimination against gypsies, for example, who are treated as asocial, semi-criminal elements who deserved what they got, um, or continued homophobia, homosexuality was still a criminal offence till the late 60s. So certain groups of victims weren't even recognised, let alone given compensation. Slave labourers, forced labourers from Eastern Europe didn't even begin to get compensation until the year 2000, when most of them, most of those few who had survived were already dead, when it was way too little, way too late. So I think when you look at the much wider 
kind of spectrum of what does justice mean after some crimes on that scale, after criminality on that scale, it's very, very limited indeed. And what I think you then get, particularly in West Germany, is the second generation, the children of the perpetrator generation, feeling agonised about this past, feeling responsible without actually being guilty, and wanting to do something about it through remembrance, through that incredible landscape of memorialisation that began to grow from the 1980s, 90s onwards, and that we see today in Germany today. But you would argue that's not enough. Well, it's in some respects better than nothing. It's a lot better to face up to and acknowledge these crimes and to remember the victims and to pay respects. Um, But it can't make up for the lack of judicial proceedings. It can't make up for the lack of compensation. And no way can it make up for what actually had happened. I mean, no amount of West Germany paying restitution reparations to Israel, for example, could make up for what they had actually done. The the mismatch between the scale of the horror and the murder and the cruelty and the attempts afterwards to, quote, make good again, this awful German word, Wiedergutmachung, making good again. It, it, it's just a massive mismatch, and there is nothing that could, could deal with that. Uh, why, why is it so important to continue writing uh, these histories? I think um, there are different reasons. In the case of my book, one of the things I wanted to do was explore the continuing reverberations at an individual and a social and psychological level among the children, the grandchildren of survivors and the children, the grandchildren of perpetrators to understand this transmission across generations because it's still a history which is very much alive. People are still grappling with it. People are still concerned about what their parents, what their grandparents did. So that's one thing that I was trying to explore in this. I wasn't writing just yet another history of the Holocaust and Nazism. I was actually trying to understand the long-term reverberations of that period and I had to preface that if you like by uh, re-looking at what it meant to be involved in that period in order to understand these longer reverberations and that is still ongoing history that is stuff we're living today that is stuff when I talk to people in Germany and around the world, it still matters to people how they feel about how their parents were silent or couldn't talk about certain things or treated them in a certain way. And and this is something, a heritage that we pass on from generation to generation. We have to try and understand that because Germany, unfortunately, is not the only case of conflict, of trauma, of victimisation, of, of perpetrators. That's one reason. The other thing I think is... Um, that we need to understand better how people become involved in a system of collective violence and how to deal with that afterwards. And I think understanding the limits of different ways of dealing with it can help us better um, address that question that people keep raising, what are the lessons of history, never again and so on. I don't think it's sufficient to say, never again, let's all be tolerant, let's be nice to everybody else. That won't do it. That isn't sufficient. Well, I, I'm so interested in the transmission of trauma. I mean, is it, is it possible to make... What are, you, do you, are there sweeping conclusions about the, uh, the impact of growing up as a grandchild of a, a Holocaust survivor? Were, were, were you, uh, or, or is every, every story different, every case different? 
Um, to some extent, every case is different. Obviously, there are huge personal differences. Um, there are some things that a historian can see, though, certain patterns, that it makes a big difference where you live. So, for example, in Poland, it's very notable that some people are now only now discovering that they've got Jewish ancestry because their survivor parents or grandparents after the war tried to remain sort of hidden to fend off any, against any further anti-Semitism in a post-war era where it was still quite rife. Um, and so they, they passed off as Catholics or Christians or whatever. Um, if you grew up in Israel or Brooklyn or other places with significant Jewish populations, the kinds of stories that survivor parents or grandparents would tell varied with national inflections, very often having to tell stories of heroism in Israel. Um, and those who felt they were just miserable survivors by some um, evasive means felt they were second-class citizens or not quite right. So that could leave a legacy of shame for some people, which it wouldn't if they'd grown up in, let's say, North London. Um, so it made a big difference what the dominant wider narratives were. Similarly, if you contrast France, where very much people felt they had to buy into the national identity, they're French above all else and only secondarily Jewish. That's quite different from the Israeli story. So I think that's one thing that a historian can shed light on, the way in which the dominant narratives can affect what an individual is willing to say, feels they ought to be able to say, or what they're too ashamed to say. And that's very interesting. Do you believe that the work you do as a historian you know, people often say, "What's the point of history?" I mean, honestly, it's not. You know, they should all be doing engineering and things. But, but if if a historian can genuinely claim that we are we are trying to trying to understand and therefore build a society that is less likely to commit acts of mass murder in the future, then there is no more important job on planet Earth. And do you think that? Do you, do you believe that books like this can help to do that? Um, I don't want to make comparisons with engineering or aeronautics or anything else, because all of those things are absolutely crucial. I don't want bridges to fall down and aeroplanes not to fly. So I don't think I want to make the claim that there's nothing more important on Earth. Um, but I do think history has an absolutely vital role to play, because, for example, if you can look at the way in which a creeping legitimation from above of what was previously unspeakable becomes speakable, becomes normal, becomes okay, the kind of prejudice, the kind of vilification of other citizens, the kind of violence against other citizens. If you can look at the way that spreads and if you can understand the way in which particular political systems allow violence to gain the upper hand, then that is an unbelievably important thing to understand. And I think very, very sadly today and over the last few years, we've seen evidence of things which, although they're quite different from the 1930s, nevertheless, I think there are lessons we can learn from the 1930s about what's going on with right-wing populism today. I was really hoping you wouldn't end there because that's very disturbing that you think that as well. Um, but thank you very much for an astonishing uh, chat interview. Uh, the book is called Reckonings, the Legacies of Nazi Persecution and the Quest for Justice. Um, congratulations and thank you very much. Thank you. One child, one teacher.